my house, as I'm sure I've told you before, is basically living upon an entire five acres worth of an ant colony. And so Mm -hmm. my house is therefore a part of this ant colony. Welcome to Ten Cent Takes, the show where we delve into detecting one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I am joined by my co-host, the gumshoe of gimmicks, Mike Thompson. Uh, I am a gumshoe of gimmicks. I do love sniffing those suckers out. You so do. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> I'm good, you know. It, I feel like it's been a while since we recorded. It's true. Yeah, it has been a minute. Yeah. It's nice to get back into it. Yeah, I'm doing well. How about you? Oh, I'm great. Great. It's a little warm, but I've got my hand fan, which I mute myself to use. It's exciting. <laughs> Keeps yeah. me on my toes. Keeps my fingers <laughs> active. <laughs> we made the mistake of recording with Stu World Order recently, and it was during a particularly oh. hot day at like noon. And I remember you kept on muting yourself and we're just, it was like your hand was going at warp speed with that fan. It was a really... <laughs> I felt bad for you, but also I was kind of amused. (laughs) I can get this thing rolling. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you are new to the show, our main episodes drop every other week and provide in-depth looks into interesting moments in comic books and how they tie into pop culture and history. But today is one of our Dollar Bin Discoveries mini-episodes that we do in between those deep dives. Now, we spend a lot of time rooting through dollar bins at local shops looking for interesting stuff. And while a lot of the issues we find are fun and weird, there may not be quite enough for us to do a deep dive on at the moment, but we do always reserve the right to change our mind later. So each episode will feature both of us talking about one random issue we came across in the dollar bins, one that fits a theme one of us chose. So this week we are doing Gumshoes and Gangsters, and that was my choice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we haven't done this before. We haven't talked about like crime comics before. I'm kind of excited about this. No, I don't think so. It's not. And, you know, I probably have more than I think I do, but I felt like I didn't have that many. So we're going to talk about what this comic is, what goes on inside it, and why it's interesting. These are mini-episodes that are meant to provide you with some weekly content between our more in-depth conversations about the weirder and more interesting moments of comic book history. So, Mike, why don't you start us off, what's sticking you to the floor, gumshoe? (laughs) As soon as you suggested this topic, I immediately knew what I wanted to talk about. Perfection. Yeah, I picked this up at the Harvey Doss anniversary sale a couple of months ago. It's part of like a couple of literal short boxes of dollar bin comics that I picked up from them because they they put out these they they had at least 60 or 70 dollar bins for you to go through. And I spent two and a half hours just very patiently kind of like going through all of this stuff. And there were so many books that I just. I was like, yeah, I don't care that much about it, but it looked interesting. But I started looking at like how full the boxes were getting. And I think I spent, I think I spent close to like 150 bucks, like in dollar bin comics that day. And 
granted, there was a lot of stuff for you in there. There was also stuff yeah, for some yeah, other yeah, people yeah. that I've been keeping an eye out for, but it was still a treasure trove. So <laughs> I found this comic. I was like, this looks weird. I love it. And immediately snapped it up. It is Whodunit, all one word, number two, published in November 1986 by Eclipse Comics. It was written by Mark Evanier, and art was by Dan Spiegel. Lettering was by Carrie Spiegel, and it was colored by Marcus David. This is like uh, an anthology series where like each issue is a different kind of whodunit mystery. Okay? Okay. All right. So the story is called Who Slew the Kangaroo? And it tells the story of Noah Zark, a rock band formed by five longtime friends who wear incredibly realistic animal costumes that are like so intense that a huge part of the fan culture surrounding this band is they try to figure out which musician is in which animal costume. Yes. Like, and to add to the mystery, it turns out that, that each band member plays a couple of different instruments and it's a whole thing. <laughs> it's okay, like, this, okay. Yeah. So the story is narrated by a bail bondsman named Endicott who is hired by the band to get Ned, who is another bandmate out of jail after he gets caught driving drunk. However, Ned is shot the following night right before the band's next concert, and he is dressed as a kangaroo, hence the case's title. So Endicott happens to be backstage when all this goes down. He had been given backstage passes by Ned, and he is there with two of the band members who find Ned's body. And there's this whole thing about how like nobody is supposed to see them backstage and figure out who's dressed as which animal. Like They were more focused on that than they are on the fact that one of their friends was just murdered supposedly because they took up, they they literally say we took a blood oath (laughs) swearing that we would never reveal the truth under the pain of death. Okay. Well, Oh my gosh. Yeah. A security guard tells Endicott that nobody except for the five musicians was backstage when the murder happened, but he did just let in a caterer a second ago to pick up his stuff. The caterer is leaving. He tells Endicott that he has an ice sculpture melting in his truck and he needs to get to his next gig. And then, the homicide detective finally arrives and it turns out there's drama because Endicott is a former cop who has a history with the guy and Endicott basically starts investigating the murder on his own because he feels that the detective is incompetent at his job. He goes to the corner and learns that Ned was shot with a 22 caliber weapon, which is missing. He then goes to Ned's sister who reveals the history of the band and starts detailing who wears which costumes The band's manager, in turn, reveals that even he didn't know which band member was which under the masks, but he reveals a fan magazine was willing to pay cash money for the band's identities and also lists what occupation they had had before they became rock stars. And the magazine reveals some details about the band members' histories, as well as like which instruments members could play. It also reveals how a previous show had been canceled because backstage security wasn't tight enough for their taste. Like I said, it's revealed that everyone in the band plays two musical instruments. It also turns out they're all left-handed and that they'd switch off on instruments to help add to the confusion. Basically, this whole story is one of those logic word problems that you have to keep track of every detail in order to solve correctly. The manager also reveals that each musician's will leaves basically everything to the other four. And so, you know, there's like prime motive for someone else in the band to be the murderer. Right. (laughs) Endicott's next stop is this like American bandstand knockoff. And he basically blackmails the host, Daryl Dwayne, who's like very much a stand in for Dick Clark uh, into giving him more info on Noah's arc. Dwayne reveals that 
most of the band was broke, except for Ned, who was worth millions. And Endicott talks to the crew and starts to believe that multiple band members actually killed Ned, but one of them may not have been in on it. He realizes the gun was put on the caterer's tray and removed from the building. So he goes to the caterer's like building office setup. I don't know what. And there are three silhouetted members of Noah's Ark already searching through this like mountainous pile of dirty dishes to recover right. the weapon. Oh, no. Yeah. And so Endicott is attacked by all three band members in their costumes. And then they reveal that the bear performer isn't in on the crime. Endicott manages to find the gun, but the band creates a distraction with a gas stove explosion to escape. Endicott then brings the weapon to the police who aren't able to tell much from it other than Endicott's fingerprints are now on it. And there were traces of a liquid bandage called new skin that had been applied to the murderer's fingertips. The police are pretty dismissive of Endicott's efforts, but he vows that he can figure out who killed Kangaroo. And so can you. And there's an interesting gimmick to the comic. If the readers could solve the mystery before the next issue was published with this mystery's conclusion, they were eligible to win a thousand bucks. Oh, hello. That's a yeah. that's big money in nineteen eighty six? Yeah. Like, you know, it was a couple grand. Wow. Like, you know. Well, I think, yeah, probably around probably around three or four grand now. Give or take. Let's, let's throw it in there's an inflation calculator. Let's throw it in. Hold on. Yeah. Tell me Adjusted what a thousand bucks is worth now. Adjusted for inflation calculator. Let's see. Bureau of Labor Statistics in November of 1986. Okay. $2,768.94. Yeah. So 2000. Oh, nice. Two, two, $2,769. All right. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So yes, yeah, that's, that's wow, dang. Yeah, you know that's not a bad amount of money for spending a couple hours figuring out a, a word problem. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Basically, readers had to answer a number of questions, including who fired the gun, what clue proved it, what the killer's motive was, and then who was which animal, along with what instrument they played and what their previous occupation was. The rules also state that if more than one person solved the mystery correctly, Eclipse would do a raffle from all the correct entries. You know, so. Oh, that's so fun. It's really kind of cool. I'm really curious how many A entries they had and B, how many correct entries they had. Um, right. But yeah, like I, I think this whole thing is really fun. The comic's actually a very solid mystery. It hands you all the clues that you need to solve it. It reminds me a lot of those mystery books that I used to read as a kid. I don't know if you did, but like, you know, it was kind of like Encyclopedia Brown or Alfred Hitchcock's Solve Them Yourself Mysteries. It's yes. like a crime puzzle in comic form, which feels really unique. Yeah. And on top of all that, the production values are really solid. Like Evanier's writing moves along at a good pace, but it never feels tropey. Spiegel's art is also really solid. This is one of those comics that I would love to do a deeper dive on. Spiegel died a couple of years ago, but Evanier is still around. So, you know, maybe we can get him to come on and talk about this sometime. Oh, yeah, that might be fun. So, you know, stay tuned, I guess. Oh. Yeah, that is my gumshoe story for the evening. What do you got? Today, I brought something that has a a bit of nostalgia for me by proxy. And also, Mike, you're going to like this one, too, since it's a gimmick. No, fuck yes, injected into my veins. 
Exactly. But before it was really cool to gimmick out your comic. So think about that. Yeah. And actually, very fun. Other So, you know, there is this gumshoe aspect that's our actual theme today. But the other unintentional theme is that my comic is from July 1986. Oh, nice. We both, <laughs> we both came with 1986 detective stories. I love it. <laughs> and I'm also from 1986. <laughs> God, you're so young. You're a baby. No, I was in a Starbucks earlier today and I told them that like I had been work, I had worked at Starbucks starting in 2005 and this one girl's like, that's when I was born. No. <laughs> one of the baristas said that and I said, I said, guess what? I graduated high school in 2004 and I said, I was born in 1986 and she was like, oh, you look so young. Fuck all the way off. <laughs> I think she was so mad about this. Like expecting me to look like the crypt keeper or something. I mean, you know, it's funny because like I look at photos of my parents from when they were my age and I'm like, oh, I'm doing all right. Like, you know, I'm looking okay. Like, like our parents' generation did not age as well as ours did. No, I I, mean, we also, to be fair, we didn't need as much lead, right? Or smoke as much or, you know. <laughs> All of these things, right? Plus, All like, of these I'm walking things. around, like, I was I was at the Starbucks wearing, like, a crop top and shorts. Like, I'm sure they didn't think I was 37 years old. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Any hoodle. So the reason that this one is kind of nostalgic for me is more through my dad because... This is Dick Tracy that we will be talking about today. And my dad loved Dick Tracy. And he actually came by when I was about to read the comic. It was like amazing timing. I had to like in my hand and he knocked on my door. And I was surprised because he's been sick. So he hasn't. He's just been at home. But um, he's been better. And so he came over and was helping my brother with something. But any hoodle, he saw that I had that comic and he's like, oh, Dick Tracy with his two-way radio on his wrist. I was like, oh man, here we go. (laughs) So even better than just Dick Tracy, it is Dick Tracy 3D number one. Oh, fuck yeah. From the Blackthorn 3D series, volume one, number eight, with a copyright through Tribune Media Services, Inc. I believe that's for the usage of Dick Tracy. I have some of those fucking books. I don't think I have Dick Tracy, but See? I've got like a G.I. Joe and a couple of others. Yeah. Oh, there you go. The 3D glasses were still included in the bag with the comic when I found it. Nice. Yeah. And it was at that really cool Outer Plane sale last year. Like I mentioned, this was published in July of 1986 when I was a wee babe of just two months of age. And titled Ocean Death Trap. So starting off strong, right? I like it. <laughs> so we start off the story with Miss Egghead kicking an unsuspecting Dick Tracy out of a plane with the foreboding line, there is your future home, Mr. Tracy. <laughs> We're not sure why he's in this plane, nor the circumstances that led up to this, but we'll just go with it, right? Mm. So at the last second, Tracy reaches back and grabs his bag out of Miss Egghead's 
hand, which contained his two-way wrist radio and all Mm -hmm. of his other, like, stuff, as he says. So he falls out of the plane with his bag and a parachute and lands on this island. At first go-around, he finds nothing on the island. No food, nothing to hunt, no way out. Oh, he does find a skull, but maybe that's not too encouraging. So... (laughs) After another pass of the island, he's approached by the only other living resident of the island, a missing member of Scotland Yard. Okay. He'd been there for like three months at this point, and he'd been like kind of hiding out watching when he saw him fall. So his name's John Whitehall. So Tracy tries his two-way radio again, as previously it hadn't been working at all. And this time he's met with the friendly voice of Bob, who's an amateur ham radio user. I love how ham radio keeps on showing up in our comics. My God. It's so funny. Every time I see ham radio, I just giggle a little. Meanwhile, Miss Egghead is wanted by the police and is in Cuba requesting the aid of Chicory, who owned a large mansion and a cockfighting kind of situation. (laughs) Okay. I know. So Miss Egghead also has a briefcase containing 50K to kind of bribe her way into a hiding place or escape. Okay. So... He tells his henchman Gorilla that, yes, he can hide her, but to put her with the Gamecocks in the basement. So she's locked in basically an inescapable steel cage with the fighting roosters, which not with them, but just like in a cage kind of with them, you know, which she's obviously not happy with. So one thing leads to another. And while everyone is coming to Tracy and Whitehall's aid, a huge tropical storm is, of course, a Bruin. Because we need another plot twist. Because we need another plot twist. It's true. Gotta write some interest in there. So the U.S. Army sends down a nose cone, which tells Tracy that the U.S. government knows exactly where they are because they wouldn't send one unless, he says. And they're coming to rescue them. Meanwhile, Chicory and Gorilla are also trying to get out of Cuba as the mansion is flooding. So they go (laughs) down, grab their game cocks, but they leave. I was going to say, did they... Wait, she's in a cage? They did. Yep. Like, in a cage. They're just like, oh, we don't have. They literally take time to put all of the roosters into individual bags. And the guy's like, we don't have enough time to open her cage to let her go kind of a thing. Like, also, they're like hiding her out. Why is she in a cage? Like, <laughs> okay. Because they wanted to steal her money. That's why. It was like she would have uh... just given it to you. She was trying to use it to bribe you. And you just were like, let's lock her in a cage. It's like very mustache twirly, honestly. <laughs> It's like, what else could we do? I love it. No, no. So, <laughs> so Chicory directs the pilot, who, by the way, has been drinking and then has an extra shot for courage. <laughs> and then is very cocky. Tells him to take the plane up because he doesn't want to lose the 600000 it cost to buy it. Six hundred. <laughs> thousand dollars what kind of plane is this it is a big pretty Uh plane yeah okay (laughs) so like i i get that this is taking place in like dick tracy time which is roughly the 30s but like (sighs) as someone whose family (laughs) owned and operated an airport facility i can tell you that 600k these days does not get you a lot of airplane 
Oh my gosh, I was gonna say, would you like this wing? <laughs> we can get you this wing. <laughs> no, like six hundred k would get you like a a decent, you know, single engine prop plane. Like, oh, you know. okay, okay. Sounds like nothing I would try to fly. All right. So ultimately, the pilot says that they're really not gonna be able to get up off the ground because of the rising water, but you know they try anyway because mm-hmm. he's being screamed at. With the plane really not getting off the ground at all and causing it to roll. And it also starts filling up with fuel because on one of the rolls, the fuel line got like severed. Okay. Right. Right. Exactly. So meanwhile, back at the mansion, the detective who had been in charge of arresting Miss Egghead, I guess, has found her in the basement. Mm -hmm. She's got a like, I don't know, an air tag on her, I guess. Something. (laughs) something and so he puts cuffs on her but like of course gets her out of there they escape on a door in the flood very titanic but i will attest that they did both fit on that goddamn door (laughs) i am just saying so but they're being rolled the fuck around and so at one point like she starts to fly off and like he so he (laughs) cuffs her to the door but then the door rolls over so she's like on the bottom side and he's like oh no oh my so god has to get like the door flipped over so there's this whole concern that like he's done this whole thing yeah it's very awkward so he yells duck at one point the detective does and she doesn't duck apparently and she gets hit with debris and dies. I mean, honestly, the way this <laughs> debris is like, it did. It took a really harsh turn. And like, honestly, the way this debris hit her, like she wasn't ducking anywhere. She got like impaled by this thing. Like Jesus there was Christ. no ducking. It was just like, hold on, because you are about to be impaled by debris. <laughs> like, I mean, it, so- it sounds like it was just a matter of time before she got fridged. So. <laughs> I mean, honestly, very truly. Oh, and you'll see extra why in a moment once I actually get down to her as a character Okay. in my commentary. So back in the plane, Chicory knows the cops are gaining on them since they can't take off. And once he sees the authorities, he like shoots into the, like the air right as Gorilla is shouting at him not to shoot because they're in like a literal <laughs> pool of jet fuel. And so their plane explodes Jesus before Christ. anyone can get them out. Even though Tracy is actively like swimming there trying because they've like rescued him at this point. And at like at the end, they're like, we're confident we can ID the bodies because we have their fingerprints. And they're like holding a dead hand. And I'm like, oh, my fucking God. God damn. <laughs> like my face throughout this description, like like these <laughs> the last minute or so of your narration of this story my jaw has just been agape like this is wild it's just taking a wilder and wilder turns right and so then like so by the way whitehall had been on that island for like three months and tracy had been there for like probably about a month at that point so they're okay. like and they hadn't been eating very much of anything like there were like like everyone like he shot a goat one time kind of a thing you know what i mean but Tracy and Whitehall get to go home, but not before a joke about them looking starved. So, okay. Firstly, about this comic. (laughs) 
The plot was wild. Of course. Yeah. I just told it to you. But also, I don't recall Dick Tracy being a particularly queer comic. But now I'm questioning that. Mm. Because Bob, the amateur ham radio user, was very androgynous. We're Mm. talking pointedly like very short hair, but like very long eyelashes. Like very pointed decisions. You know what I mean? Okay. And Miss Egghead was definitely portrayed as starting off presenting very feminine, wearing a dress, had like had like coiffed hair. But when asking to be hid, was presenting in a very masculine way, was wearing a suit with a balding head exposed, with like the crown balding, with like a little ring, you know, looking weird. like a businessman. Okay, like very weird, right? But but so the, it's not like and, a dude in disguise. It's always just Miss Egghead. It's always Miss Egghead. Through all of this, no one misgendered her, always using she, her pronouns. So I think it's interesting because she is drawn in the shape that a man normally would be. Very narrow, up and down body, no curves. Interesting. It was so interesting. Yeah. Uh, Hmm. Like, I'm I'm not overly... I'll send you a couple pictures. Yeah, I'm not really familiar with Dick Tracy other than the basics. I, like, I... Same. I don't. I I saw the movie back in the nineties. Right, right. A lot outside of that, other than I remember. Right. The cartoon has not aged particularly well. It's it's pretty, pretty unintentionally racist these days, as I recall. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we don't like that. Yeah, wow. but like you know, also it's the time. Um. Yeah. No, that's really interesting right. though. I'm thrilled that I get to see this later on. So. Yeah, I will definitely take a picture and you just look around the fact that it really is drawn with the 3D line. So it's got like kind of the blue mm-hmm. <laughs> like shadowing. Oh, yeah, I love that. And I, you know, I got to read it in 3D. It was, you know, speaking of that, moving on to the art, I think they did a really nice job with making the scenes make sense in the mm. 3D setting. Like, they had all of these panels with the plane rolling and other really explosive action scenes that added to the effect. Mm. And I think the story was good. I mean, it really just really just took off from a point, you know? Right. But <laughs> it was easy to follow. It gave the reader the context and the information that they needed. So, I mean, all in all, I think it was a solid comic. Although, again, it was pretty intense that they just kind of threw up their hands at the end. Honestly, they were like, oh, well, the bad guys died like they deserve, I guess. Which is a fucking take. I don't remember Dick Tracy. <laughs> like, I don't really have any familiarity with the comics. So, like, I'm curious if that was just kind of what his comics were like. Maybe so. I just was like, wow. It's <laughs> oh, wild. This is so intense. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. Well, so I I guess that's our episode. Yeah, I guess so. Gumshoes and gangsters. I know. Saving the most explosive one for last, I suppose. <laughs> well, we hope you had a good time. We certainly did. And tell you what, we will see you next week for a deep dive. And then the week after, we will be back with another dollar bin discovery. But until then... We will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Jessica Frazier and edited by Mike Thompson. 
Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan MacDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who's at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter for now. The official podcast account is TencentTakes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Mastodon, Facebook, TikTok, and Blue Sky. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. 